Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Here we are again. It's me again. What's that? <laughs> my colleagues weren't excited to give the first evening talk. It's not an easy talk to give after the first day of practice where you're, the energy is low and the doubts come. What am I doing here? So I, I got inspired and I said I'd say some words. <clears throat> and I hope they're useful for you. Um, you wouldn't think it would be that difficult a thing to do, to just be here and notice that you're breathing. I mean, it's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, right? Just be here, breathe, know that you're breathing. Lift your foot, know that you're lifting it. It's hard, isn't it? Gosh, it's hard. And the first day, particularly if you're new to this, but even if you've been doing it for some time, there's quite commonly a feeling of discouragement or disappointment. Gosh, why is this hard? Or why aren't I doing it better? Or, or doubt, is this going to really work? Or, gosh, what if it's like this for the next eight days? It's one of the good things about having done a number of retreats before. After a while, you kind of get that it rarely stays like it does on the first. In fact, I've never heard of that happening. You'll be guaranteed that there'll be some changes in the next eight days. But I wanted to talk tonight about just how this process works. You come here, and it seems so remote the possibility of being here, of actually being here for stretches at a time, really being present. Oh yeah, maybe three years ago I did a retreat and I did get a little present, but boy, it sure doesn't look that way now. So how does this process work? What I wanted to talk about tonight, it seemed fitting to me, as an opening talk, is a follow-up on what I started to talk about last night. And that is, although it takes a few days to land, for most people about three days to land, there is one ingredient that you bring to this process that allows it to unfold. And that is your intention to be present. I'd like to talk about intention tonight. Intention is um, what's called a common mental factor. In Buddhist psychology, there are 52 mental factors that are present. Sometimes some are present and others other times they're not. Some are wholesome, some are unwholesome, and there are a few common 
mental factors that are present in every moment, a handful of them. And intention is one. It's here in every moment. And in fact, it is key to understanding not only what we do here, but the unfolding of our whole life, the direction of our whole life, once you understand how central it is, because all of karma is based on intention. Everybody knows the word karma, cause and effect. All of karma is based on intention. So if we understand it clearly and see our choices, there are a number of different possibilities that we can create. It's said that the, the source of all suffering in our life, the, sor- the source of all unwholesome karma, are actions and words that come out of intentions that are grasping, that are attached. Intentions, actions that are colored by an aversive intention, moving away, or actions or words that are colored by a confused intention, not seeing clearly. That's the source of all suffering, the big three, greed, hatred, and delusion, or attachment, aversion, ignorance, another way of saying it. The source of all happiness are actions that come out of intentions that are the opposite of those three. Actions that spring from an intention of non-greed or generosity is a, a source of great happiness. Actions that come out of non-hatred or kindness also will reap very positive and wholesome karma. And actions coming out of non-delusion or clarity, wisdom, seeing clearly is really the heart of all our wholesome experience. In every single moment there's intention. So we could say that in every single moment we are planting seeds for future results. Thich Nhat Hanh has a, a beautiful way of putting it in his teaching on nourishing healthy seeds. He says, Consciousness exists on two levels, as seeds and as manifestations of these seeds. Suppose we have a seed of anger in us. When conditions are favorable, that seed may manifest as a zone of energy called anger. It is burning and it makes us suffer a lot. It's very difficult for us to be joyful at the moment the seed of anger manifests. Every time a seed has an occasion to manifest itself, it produces new seeds of the same kind. When I smile, the seeds of smiling and joy have come up. As long as they manifest, new seeds of smiling and joy are planted. But if I don't practice smiling for a number of years, that seed will weaken and I may not be able to smile anymore. There are many kinds of seeds in us, 
both good and bad. Every time we practice mindful living, we plant healthy seeds and strengthen the healthy seeds already in us. If we plant wholesome, healing, refreshing seeds, they will take care of the negative seeds, even without our asking them. To succeed, we need to cultivate a good reserve of refreshing seeds. When we do the loving-kindness practice, as I'm sure many people here have done, what we're doing is planting the seeds of a heart that wishes well, even though it seems a bit forced or stilted, not very loving, just inclining the mind and planting seeds of kindness, they start to bear fruit. And if you've ever done a, a metta retreat, it's, uh, it's quite extraordinary how at the beginning it just seems quite mechanical and somehow those seeds start to ripen as the days go on. There are a, a few ways that I like to think of these seeds as uh, bearing wholesome karma. There's the result that happens in the immediate moment if you are planting, well, whatever seed, whether it's an uh, unha- unhealthy seed or a healthy seed. Suppose, we'll, we'll just take both scenarios. Suppose you say something um, that's unskillful, or you think something that's unskillful and then act on it, okay? There is the, in the immediate moment, you feel the unpleasantness of that. Say you've gotten really angry, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. The likelihood of that response arising in a future situation is greater as you've planted that seed. The result that comes back to you, the energy that you put out, there is that resultant karma people not particularly wanting to be around you. And also when you look back and reflect on a particular action that you've done that's unskillful, it also feels yucky, right? So just that one seed has a great power to it, particularly as it conditions more being planted. Taking the The reverse, suppose you plant a seed coming out of uh, a spontaneous urge of generosity or kindness. It feels good in the moment, right? Think of a kind act that you've done recently. It feels good as you're doing that act. The likelihood of that response arising in the future is greater because you are practicing, you've planted seeds that manifest, you know, how flowers then have loads of seeds on them as they, as they, uh, they grow. The energy that comes back to you is one of wholesomeness. People probably want to be around you, at least that person who you are kind to. And when you reflect back on particular action, it feels good too. So you get a double hit. Mm, Gee, that felt good. So it doesn't seem like very much perhaps 
each act, but everyone counts. You can see just the you know, in, enormity of how karma can work if you think that in every single moment we are planting seeds coming out of intention. As we more are clear of what we want to create in our life, we have tremendous power to influence our unfolding process. Now, the same is true here when we come to practice, when we come to do a retreat like this and spend the day trying to be present. At first, it seems so challenging. You know, maybe you caught a couple of breaths in a meditation period. And if this is new to you, don't think you're doing it wrong. At the beginning, it's just the idea, okay, to come back, to be here as present as you can, and when you see you've gone, okay, come on back again. And as has been said, when you realize you've gone, instead of feeling lousy that you've been gone, ah, this is an opportunity for you to once more come back in a kind and patient way and plant that seed, that intention of presence. And again, just like been mentioning with the other examples, planting that seed, one, it feels good that you have that intention to do it. Two, the likelihood of that arising in the future, that intention is greater. Also, the likelihood of you being present happens because that seed is bearing fruit eventually. And it feels good having done that and having given yourself over to, to the Dharma to see the truth. Intention is very closely linked to motivation. Last night when I asked you, why are you here? Remember that? Uh, it's a very key question for me because when we have some kind of vision of what we're trying to create, it can fuel our, our effort. The, the effort to practice comes out of some inspiration or vision or faith in the practice. It comes out of a possibility. For me, one inspiring line by the Buddha, he says, um, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, or delusion, I would not tell you to do so. Pretty straight, no frills. He said, it's possible. When I first heard that, I thought, oh, maybe it's not just for you know, yogis who sit in a cave. Maybe he was talking about it for everyone. Maybe for me too. So that motivation, freeing the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, that might have been something that calls to you. Or maybe it's to open your heart or whatever the answer that came to you last night when I asked you to reflect on it, that's the motivation. That, that gets you to take the action to practice. And then motivation, for me, becomes linked to or leads to intention when having been inspired by the vision, there is a decision to actualize that vision.
if you don't have that vision, or if you don't think it's possible, then doubt becomes your, your main companion. I came across this line, I think it was Mark Twain, and he said something like, if you think something is impossible, you'll make it impossible. It's so, isn't it? If that's what you think, that's the reality that you create. Or Napoleon Hill, a great motivator in that business, and actually a very, uh, for me, a, a, a wonderful teacher about how we create our reality, saying, that which you can conceive and believe, you will achieve. The Buddha said the same thing. Mind is the forerunner of all things. So it starts with some kind of vision, and then when we are inspired enough and have enough either confidence or faith or courage, we decide to commit to that. Now, even though there is a decision to commit, and perhaps you have the intention to do this retreat and learn as much as you can or open as, as greatly as you can, doubts are a natural part of the process. Doubts are here for everyone, even for the Buddha. The moment before he was enlightened, Mara coming to visit him and saying, what gives you the right? What makes you think you have the right to be enlightened? The last thing, just before the Buddha touched the earth and said, as the earth is witness to all the work I've done over countless lifetimes, I have a right to be fully free. What does that mean, Mara coming to the Buddha? Doubts can come to all of us. Jesus on the cross, the same thing, saying, why hast thou forsaken me? So you've got some good company if you have a doubt or two that comes through your mind. It's not that you've got to get rid of those doubts, but to hold them in a way that they don't become the fixed reality seeing how empty they are and as the the practice goes on and you see you go through the different phases and moods you see doubt coming and going or aversion coming and going or restlessness coming and going and we'll talk about those in the next few days all the the typical companions these first days of practice and when you see that they're impermanent you start to get that that's not the only reality. Believing in your thoughts, believing in your doubts, is, uh, is very um, enmeshing. And there's not a way out until you come through the other way and you say, oh yeah, it came and it went. Or, when you start to see, and perhaps you've seen this enough in your own practice, many of you, that... You don't have to wait to come out the other end. Oh, that's just a thought that I don't have to believe. You see through the emptiness of the thoughts. Oh, just a thought. Thoughts are as real as we make them or as empty as we let them be. I'll share with you a a teaching from Joseph Goldstein since I won't get a chance to talk in a few days that seems appropriate. A great way to deal with thoughts that 
of doubt or any kind of thoughts that are troubling you. You don't invite the thoughts to come in. They just come in by themselves. But we take ownership of them. Oh, God, look at that thought that I'm having. Well, he says, imagine they're coming from the person behind you. Because for all intents and purposes, that's as much reality as you taking ownership of them, saying, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to have a good bout of doubt right now. You You don't do that. It just comes in all on its own. So it's not that you need to get rid of the thoughts, but holding them in that wider spaciousness of mind and coming back to your intention to once again planting healthy seeds of awakening. Sometimes it gets confusing. We, we, kind of, we wait for a pure intention to be here. And we see that maybe we have some mixed intentions. It's not so clean and pat as that. You, know? you might want to be present, okay? I really want to be present for my experience, you might say to yourself. I really want to be present. I really want to be present. And then what comes is fear. Well, maybe I don't want to be as present as I, as I thought a few minutes ago. Maybe I I would like to be present. I wish I was present, but this is a pretty tough one. Maybe I need to just back away. And then you get kind of doubting about yourself. Oh, am I running away? Am I taking it easy? Or maybe you're you're feeling, okay, if I'm committed, I'm going to just do it full on, 110%. And then you might might find yourself uh, getting really tight. And you say, oh, gosh, I don't think I can do it like this. Maybe I just need to to rest a bit. And you might feel that you're cheating because you have that kind of an idea of what you you think it should should look like. And that's that's not so skillful when you start evaluating your... Um, your actions or needs in thinking that you should have 100% pure intention all the time to do it the way you think you should do it. There are times when it's really skillful to back off and give yourself some space, whether it's from fear or from overzealousness. And then there are times when it might be that you're getting a bit lazy or you're getting a bit timid and not moving to the forward edge of practice, as it's sometimes said. If you wait for 100% purity of intention all the time, you might be waiting a long time because it's not so clean and clear like that. And so what I find it helpful to do is to really listen well and get in touch with what my highest intention is why am I doing what I'm doing? What is it that is motivating me to do what I feel I should do next? And if you can get in touch, even though there might be many mixed intentions, with something that really speaks to you from your heart, then once again you've gotten back on track. And that's the same not only here in formal practice, but in our life too. We might have 
different kinds of motives or intentions for actions that seem mixed, some very noble and some perhaps a bit more ego-bound. You don't have to wait until you're a saint. You can notice all of those different motives or intentions and come, to the, come back in touch with the one that really inspires you and moves you and let that ride your actions. And even if you see yourself slipping into unwholesome actions again, um, just going in that direction and having a commitment to continue in that way will affect that process of change. A number of years ago, I was uh, at a retreat. I was sitting at a retreat in Yucca Valley, and um, there was a... the movement session in those days uh, was uh, from somebody from the Lomi school who um, was uh, doing some movement. And at the end of the, uh, the session, somebody came up to him and asked some questions about some problems that they were having with their, their body um, and couldn't do, uh, couldn't do particular exercise uh, that he had pointed out. He said, well, you might try doing this as an alternative. And this person said, oh, no, 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 I couldn't do that because I know if I did that, then, then this would happen. You know? And he said, well, he gave her about two or three different options. And each one she kind of parried and, and said, oh, no, no, I know I wouldn't be able to do that. You know? And then he kind of looked at her. I was listening in uh, a few people around with questions. I was just kind of curious. And he looked at her and he said, you know, um, I think your intention to stay the same is greater than your intention to change. When your intention to change becomes greater than your intention to stay the same, you will change. Until then, you'll probably stay the same. It was was a very um, striking moment. Because you could feel that 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 was so. There were reasons and, and fear, I think, probably behind her, her parrying, but she wasn't in touch with her intention, her full-on intention to change. Sometimes we confuse intention with expectation or goal. We might have the intention to be mindful or to, to do this well, but it gets mixed up with all kinds of ideas and timetables and schedules. Well, here it is, the second day, and I'm still not there. Or here it is, the fourth day, and I'm still, still having this issue going around in my mind. When am I going to get rid of it? Or here it is, gosh, everybody is doing slow walking and I just, you know, can't do it, or I'm so filled with emotion and, you know, everybody else is quiet, or gosh, everybody is going through some deep emotional releases and I'm just flat and not not much is happening. We have all kinds of ways that we judge our practice by scorecards that we set up for ourselves. And this is very different than planting wholesome intention. 
As soon as you've got a report card going, and I would encourage you to invite you to look at ways that you might have a report card at the end of the sitting. You know when the bell rings, there's that moment where you kind of wake up or realize that you weren't here or say, wow, what happened that 45 minutes? What do you do with that? Do you take ownership of it? Do you take it personally and say, gosh? Or suppose you're really clear. Okay. That's just as tricky. Hey, I think I can do this. I think I'm pretty good, actually. And although you might have a clear sitting, as soon as you've taken ownership of that, it's a setup for the next time when you're not that way. So be careful. Any kind of report card, any way that you find yourself trying to measure up to standards, you'll never measure up. The best you can do is pass or fail. But there's not that feeling of understanding that this process is not something that you have to take blame or credit for. And in fact, it's very comforting for me to realize that I don't have control over this process. I don't have control over how mindful I am. I don't have control over how concentrated or calm I am, or emotional or unemotional I am. All of those things just come on their own. Now that might seem discouraging. Oh, I don't have control over my mind. But actually, it's great news. Because you never had control over it anyway, so why put that pressure on yourself? And to see that you don't have control over it, you don't have to take blame for what comes through or responsibility for what's happening. The one thing that you have control over is the sincere intention to be here as best you can. That's it. That's your end of the deal. And that is a great relief for me. When you are caught in expectations, expectations are coming from the head. And intention really comes from the heart. You plant that seed and then you surrender. And then you just let go. That's where they both come together, this active, heartfelt commitment to awakening and then the surrender that just allows the unfolding to happen on its own. And in these first few days, particularly, that is the challenge for everyone because the first few days are filled mainly with busy mind, maybe some adjustment and aches in the body, being so still for these hours, lots of sleepiness, and lots of restlessness. Those are the main things that happen the first couple of days. So if you've been having those, you're right on schedule. You're doing just fine. Okay? And that's where 
letting go of responsibility for the process and having great compassion and patience, you don't take it so personally and you see, oh, this is a very typical settling in experience. When you can bring that sincere intention to your practice, just to plant the seeds of being present, it also acts as a protection. Because that intention guides us through our confusions. Because in that moment you are connected to something deep in your heart, your sincerity. I remember being around uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, a number of years ago. There was this conference of some uh, uh, Dharma teachers, and I was fortunate enough to be there. And um, somebody asked His Holiness, what do you do with all the fear that you are that you come in contact with people coming who are quite frightened and who look to you for um, for support and comfort people who've gone through torture and all kinds of you know unspeakable sufferings who are quite frightened you know? what do you do and he said sometimes he can get afraid what do you do with all the fear how do you deal with it and he said my sincere motivation is my protection. And then the next day, somebody asks him, what do you do with all the suffering? You know, the enormity of the suffering that you encounter. And he said exactly the same thing. My sincere motivation is my protection. He didn't hesitate a moment. He just said, my sincere motivation. This is your protection, your sincere motivation or your sincere intention. is once you set your course in a particular direction, you start to see that it unfolds in, a, in the way that those seeds have been planted. And in setting your course, in having that intention, in having that sincerity of heart and motivation, anything is possible. Transformation is possible. And uh, I wanted a long... Uh, the lines to share with you, uh, along these lines, to share with you a couple of uh, stories about the power of intention um, from a book that from people who've been around me for the last uh, year or so know that I, I found really helpful. This book, How We Choose to Be Happy. I'll just say a little bit about it and, uh, and then share the stories. This is a a book written by two fellows, um, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, who interviewed 230 plus extremely happy people. They identified extremely happy people. They go to a town and say, you know, in rural Alabama, and say, who's the happiest person in town? And in the diner, Three people would say, oh, Shirley, she's, she's the happiest. And they go to Shirley and they'd speak with her and they get a sense, oh, yeah, this seems like a pretty happy person. And then they'd ask her to, if they could speak to some people in other walks of her life. So it wasn't just she's happy in, in town in the diner, but 
you know, that she was truly happy. And when it was seen that she was a really happy person, then they interviewed her and found out what her secrets of happiness were. And they did this over and over for about three years until they distilled nine choices that all of the people interviewed, nine common denominators, nine common choices that all of these people made in their life, consciously or not. And the first choice, the start of the whole process, is not surprisingly the intention to be happy, which is not what a lot of us are in touch with. As they say, many of us are in touch with the intention to be successful or to be loved or to, to be okay. But these people made the choice to be happy. And they define happiness, by the way, it's not a kind of syrupy happiness. It's, uh, I might as well just read this, the definition of happiness. Yeah. A profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness. A rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing you can deal productively and creatively with all that life offers, both the good and the bad. Knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than demands of others. And a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. They say, by the way, truly happy people aren't happy all the time. They're engaged. But it starts with the intention to be happy. And here's a couple of stories that I think can show you the power of intention. This is first a Swedish proverb. Those who wish to sing always find a song. A lot of these people were not born happy, but somehow arrived at a decision, an intention, to move in that direction. Maddie's parents were part of the Hollywood elite of the early 1950s. She should have had an idyllic childhood, enjoying the opulent grounds of the mansion in which she was raised. But each new day in the lives of nine-year-old Maddie and her little brother Carl brought new uncertainties and fears. Their mother, alcoholic, drug-addicted, and violent, periodically took an axe to the family Cadillac. By the way, I, I've gotten to spend time with these guys, and they say that they toned down what her reality actually was. At Maddie's mother, as Maddie's mother's addictions took hold and her violent behavior increased, Maddie's father abandoned the family. Eventually, even the servants fled in the face of her unpredictable rages. Maddie and Carl were left alone with their disturbed mother, who often didn't leave the house for days on end. Miles from the nearest market, they lived on peanut butter and tried to stay out of their mother's way. And this is her talking. My brother and I were usually by ourselves all day long. On school days, the bus dropped us off to a quiet and foreboding house. Some days we would hardly see our mother at all. We were so unhappy, 
almost numb. I knew the kids at school were different from us. I wanted to be like them. They were relaxed, they laughed and joked, and seemed to really enjoy their days. This was mysterious to me at the time. Then one day I said to myself, I'm going to be happy just like the other kids. I remember telling Carl I had it all figured out. Maddie could see that her mother was miserable compared to the other mothers she knew. She reasoned that the only way to be happy was to do exactly the opposite of what her mother did. She came up with an ingenious plan to learn in reverse. And this is her talking again. One day, sitting on the steps outside the vacant servants' quarters where we could hide out, Carl and I made a pact. We promised each other that we would find new ways to be happy every day, and each time we did, whether it was playing a new game, telling a new joke, or having a good laugh, we would be different from her. That, this was a moment that will be etched in my memory forever. Carl and I still talk about it as the liberating moment in our childhood. And it goes on to talk about what her life is now. It's like she's this incredibly bubbly, happy media personality in the Northeast and uh, that everybody just loves being around. Isn't that amazing? You You don't have to be a victim of your... Certainly we all have... Some of us have terrible circumstances that we've come through, but we don't have to be a victim of our dukkha. If we incline the mind in a different intention, anything is possible. This is one more story I want to share. Adele, this is, this is the one that really gets me. Adele, in 1991, experienced an unusually tragic set of losses. Her life unraveled as the losses began to pile up. Her talking. In one horrible 24-month period of my... In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground, leaving me with nothing. No clothes, photos, furniture. No material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman at the same time that my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. (laughs) After a while, all you can do is laugh. You know, it's like, oh my God, right? Everything in Adele's life disappeared, and she had to make decisions about how to go on but without establishing some form of intention, she would be immobilized. What was her intention? Having lost everything, Adele had many intentions to establish. She explored the most fundamental of them. Would she live or die? Her talking. I had nothing. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go 
and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see that this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. It goes on to tell her story about the process of grieving and pain that she had to, to go through, and you can't bypass that process. But having that intention to start fresh led her to this you know, incredible, rich, fulfilling life, as it talks about in the later chapters. Now, the Buddha said, if you really want happiness, go for the highest happiness, and everything else will follow. And he said, there is one way to overcome lamentation and grief and sorrow and feel the full, complete freedom that's possible. And that is mindfulness. That is to wake up to your life. That is to see clearly the nature of reality and be free of the confusions that distort our reality or see through them. So in the very simple act of intending to be present, you are going for the highest happiness. And he said, if you go for the highest happiness, all the other happinesses will come. So it's a pretty good incentive to be here, isn't it? On a retreat like this, each moment that you remember why you're here, when the doubts come, if you can remember why you're here and reflect on what it is that you're trying to actualize, the vision that you're trying to actualize, then anything you do, you can see if this is a support for that actualization. The act itself doesn't matter whether it's going for a cup of tea or going for a walk. Is this going to support my practice? Sometimes it might be, sometimes it might not be. Only you can, can go by the sincerity of your heart. Why, why is it that I'm doing what I'm doing? Okay? Not looking at the outward form. And if by... By chance, you maybe look back and realize, okay, that wasn't so skillful. Then it's never too late to start again. Just like in the meditation, we say, start the meditation right now. Every moment is a new beginning. In fact, there's one, one discourse that the, the Buddha give, uh, gave to his son, Rahula, I really love, where he says, 
basically, it doesn't matter when you wake up, start right in that moment. He says, you might have a thought that arises before you do an action. And if you reflect, is this going to lead towards suffering or is this going to lead towards happiness? If you can catch it and see if it's leading towards suffering, abandon it. If it's leading towards more happiness and peace, cultivate it. Wonderful. He says, though, you might not catch it before it gets it arises into the action or the words. He says, if you're in the middle of words or speech and you can remember, you reflect, is this leading towards happiness or towards more suffering? And if it's leading towards happiness, obviously cultivate it. If not, then don't. And then he says, you might not remember until or realize till after you've gone through the whole process. And looking back, you see that you've done something that bears reflection. Okay? And then you reflect, okay, was this creating more happiness in my life or more suffering? And he says, even then, if you realize then, so you learn from the experience, it's never too late. You don't spend more time beating yourself up because, oh, I did it wrong and I, now I really deserve to you know, pull the whip out. Uh-uh, that, that's, that leads to just another cyclical self-flagellation, confirming how dumb you are. But if you use what he called wise reflection and see, oh, okay, what can I learn from that? Then you begin right in that moment. And that again and again comes back to your intention to awaken. When you do get in touch with your intention, what you're really doing, if you're getting in touch with your highest aspiration, is aligning yourself with the truth, with that purity of heart that I think all of us can feel. You know when you are really aligned with your values, with your... um, your highest aspiration in your dharma, in your dharma practice. When you do that, that aligning with truth is really not you. It's really, I think of it as hearing the call from inside, hearing the call from a very deep place. You know, when we take refuge in the Buddha, not just the historical figure, like how he was talking about last night, take refuge in, in the Buddha, in that place in you, that seed of real awakening and wisdom. And that, you can't really say, that's me. That's something that expresses itself through me. And you see through this sense of self to something much vaster that we can hear from time to time. And it's a kind of homing device when we get in touch with that clarity of, of heart, that purity of heart. So one way that I think of 
working with intention is, and in fact, this whole process is listening carefully. Just the mindfulness practice can be thought of as just a very careful listening, listening to the moment and listening to your heart, listening to the depth of truth in you, the Buddha in you, the Buddha knowing in you, and not letting your head get in the way, your thoughts and confusions. When you are pulled towards that yearning for awakening, then everything else is held within that strong commitment. This is from uh, Punjaji, a teacher that that all of us uh, spent time with. Very, very wonderful teacher. He says... The desire for freedom is the most intense desire. All other desires are on the surface. They rise and fall, you see. The desire for freedom is intense, and you must respond to it. When you respond, this desire will bring you back home. It will continue to trouble you if it is not fulfilled. This desire must be fulfilled whether you like it or not. So really it's listening deep inside to whatever it is that has called you to do this very strange practice. It's extraordinary karma that we've all been able to hear this call. And it's something to, to be honored and delight in, and inspired by. And as we practice more and more, we get more in touch with that purity of heart and it becomes more and more compelling. And then as we see through that sense of self more, we see the connection that we have to all of life. And then the the intention and the motivation up-levels even more. Because then you see that you're not just practicing for your own happiness, but because there's no separation between you and all of life, you're practicing for everything. You're practicing for all. And that's the intention of bodhicitta, of sharing your practice, practicing not only for yourself, but for everyone. This is uh, from Nyoshal Kempo. He says, We're not practicing for ourselves alone, since everybody is involved and included in the great scope of our prayers and meditations on this perfectly pure motivation. This good heart, pure heart, vast open mind, it is not something foreign to us, yet it's something we could relate to more, cultivate, generate, and embody We talk about vast and profound teachings of Dharma, such as Dzogchen, but without this goodness of heart, this unselfishness, it is mere chatter, gossip, and rationalization. The very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others. Bodhicitta. If we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, 
purified, transformed, and even become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart which we strive to embody. And this gives us tremendous juice to practice. Isn't that a fantastic thought that as you're doing this work, you're not only doing it for your own peace of mind and feeling good, but it's a gift that you give to everyone. It's a gift that you give to all of life. It's extraordinary. For me, it, it makes, me, makes me feel a sense of responsibility out of gratitude for the blessings that, that I've been given to want to just contribute in whatever way I can with a little bit more kindness or, or wisdom in the world and clarity in the world. And we all have that capacity. So each moment of practice, we're planting these seeds through our sincerity of heart. And if we face the right direction, we will actualize those seeds. I'll close with this quote from the Scottish Himalayan expedition by W.H. Murray about the power of intention, which he calls commitment. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness, concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That is, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no person could have dreamt would have come their way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.